it's really tempting to chart your way along that graduated pressure by how much you're succeeding, right? Because you're able to say, hey, I'm, I'm getting this line in, I'm, now I'm getting this line in, now I'm getting that line in. But it, the, the, like, the magic of this actually comes when you start tracking your failures, right? You start tracking what breaks down. Because as you build more and more pressure into your system, as Jane practices that central line under worse and worse and more adversarial conditions, she's able to see which parts of her ability to do that break down first. Right. So if you put her all the way at the end, if you're like Jane sink a line into this INR 10 thrashing patient, like she might fail and you might have no idea why you might not actually learn anything because, because that dyad of the person and the situation fails at so many different points. But if you apply graduated pressure to it, you're able to sort of let little things fail, fix them, improve your ability to do it. And then ramp that up over time to really apply that wedge to the situation. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is a collaboration between the people at EM Basic and The Emergency Mind. In this episode, you're going to hear Dr. Dan McCollum and I talk through the details of how to build sangfua, the skill of being calm and cool under pressure. We talk primarily from the point of view of somebody who is just starting out a career in delivering emergency medical care, but there's really a lot to learn and think about here regardless of your personal position. If you like what you hear, and I sincerely hope you do, you can find both podcasts, both the EM Basic Podcast and the Emergency Mind Podcast, on Apple Podcasts or essentially anywhere else that you find podcasts. You can also find EM Basic at embasic.org or the Emergency Mind at emergencymind.com, specifically emergencymind.com slash podcast. Additionally, a lot of the details of what we cover in this episode come from the Emergency Mind book, which is called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. You can find that on Amazon or more details at emergencymind.com book. Okay, all that said, let's get into this collaboration episode. I hope you enjoy. So Dan, I'm really, really excited to talk to you today. Uh, it's great to do a, a joint podcast between the EM Basic and uh, Emergency Mind podcasts. And uh, I guess today we're going to be chatting about uh, how more junior learners could kind of incorporate some of this emergency mind thinking into their practice. Absolutely. Dan, always good to see you again. And, and we'll get the obligatory Dan Dan joke out of the way at the beginning. So but always happy to <laughs> always happy to be on here or any of the any of the formats we talk to each other in. Uh, a pleasure as always. So Dan, uh, as the fellow Dan, uh, one of the things that was really bewildering to me when I first started emergency medicine uh, residency is, is I saw all these clinicians that just seemed so cool under pressure and it was just mystifying, like how did they get there? So do you have any advice or, or, or tips that you want to kind of point uh, senior medical students or interns about how they could perform under pressure? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're, I think you're getting to the heart of something that, that is very near and dear to me, which is that it, in fact, sort of the whole thesis of the emergency mind in general is that applying knowledge under pressure is its own skill and that it's a skill that needs to be trained explicitly and separately from, from everything else that we do. Right. So there's sort of these two ideas. There's in emergency medicine, right. There's the medical knowledge, the, the facts, the things that you need to understand about how the human body works in health and disease and, and how to address different circuits and how to run a team and how to do this kind of stuff. And then there's mapping that knowledge onto the reality of what you're facing in the moment at that patient, which is all about applying that knowledge under pressure. And it is 
totally a normal thing to feel kind of bewildered by what you're saying about that. Like, how do you apply that knowledge, especially as you're still trying to learn it at the same time? How do you apply that in these really tense life and death situations? Um, I certainly had a bunch of challenges with that. I, I haven't talked ever to a single emergency physician that had it all figured out right from the beginning. I think that's a really normal thing to feel. Um, and my my hope with our with our book, you know, the emergency mind wiring your brain for performance under pressure, is that it gives you a, a sort of vocabulary and a scaffold to to build into this question with, and the start of something that you can iterate and experiment on as you're as you're developing your sense of self as an emergency physician or as an emergency provider of whatever flavor that is, um, and to give you a, a a way to launch experiments into your own your own work and that of your team. So Dan, one of the things that you just said there that I think is kind of huge was this is a learnable skill as opposed to like a trait. So, so yes. you're telling me that these, you know, women and men that are just so like, they're just cool as a cucumber when everything is falling apart. That's not just something that they're born with, but like a, a skill that could be learned. You know, I, I think that's true. I don't know how to prove that, right? Like maybe there's somebody out there that's born cool as a cucumber. That's sort of, it's sort of a difficult to prove the negative in that sense, but I've never met anybody like that. And that includes anybody that I've ever talked to in emergency medicine, in any of the other guests I've had on the podcast, anybody I've met from the jujitsu or surfing worlds or, or anything. Like, I don't know anybody that, that is sort of just like grows up perfectly like that. I, I certainly wasn't right. And I mean, I tell the story in the book about the first, um, you know, some of the first patient encounters I had where I was like super just sweating through my clothes and my short white coat and like stumbling around how to pronounce my own name. Um, and that certainly is not being cool under pressure. And somehow you sort of like, you learn how to do that. And, and I think it's a myth. I think it's a really uh, important myth to dispel that people just sort of grow up like that. Like it's some innate talent or you're bit by a radioactive spider and suddenly like you have the superpowers that everybody else wants. Um, quite on the contrary, I think, I think it is a skill and it's a skill that can be trained in a sense like any other skill, right? So if we borrow some of the best learning that we have from, you know, neuroanatomy and physiology and like learning theory, cognitive load theory and expertise theory, all this kind of stuff, like what does that teach us about how to learn a skill and apply it under pressure? Like there, there's no reason we can't apply that to the, the skill of, you know, and I'll use that word here, sangfua, right? Being cool under pressure, which is sort of the, the, the overall attitude and, and ability to deliver your knowledge in, in times of crisis. I, I love it. I, I often will tell interns, like, if you're not a little bit scared about what you're doing, then you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> like, because what we're, what we're tasked with, you know, both in the emergency department, as well as other high risk, you know, activities that, that listeners might participate in, um, it's scary, you know, like it, it is something that, that, you know, by definition, um, it wouldn't be a high pressure situation if failure didn't have at least some consequence um, mm -hmm. that would remove a lot of that pressure. So it's important to realize that that's entirely normal. And then the people that you look up to that just seem, you know, very cold blooded, you know, like, you know, th those folks, they were in a similar place. Um, and different learners pick up the skill at different speeds based on, in my experience, how intentionally they apply uh, the very concepts that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree because I actually think that that myth of being born with it, of it being an innate character trait is one of two really important myths that need to be dispelled before you get to work on applying knowledge under pressure, right? So one is you have it or you don't. And often I get asked questions by medical students or by sort of more junior learners like, man, what if I'm not the type of person that can do this? 
right? And that supposes a universe where there are types of people that can do it and types of people that can't. And I don't think that's the universe that we live in. I think it's a universe where we can train it. But the other myth, which is I think equally important and equally important to dispel, is the idea that it just happens naturally as part of your normal training. Like it just happens naturally from time on target. Like the more patients you see, oh, you'll just sort of accidentally figure it out as you go about your work. And I, I like to run a thought experiment to, as sort of a straw man argument to sort of prove, or at least for me, why I think that's not the case, right? So if all it took was number of patients that you saw, then the oldest doctor would always necessarily be the most calm under pressure. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Like the oldest person in the room would always be the one who was best at performing in a crisis because they just seen the most number of patients. And th that's just not always true. Like, and there are some amazing, like elder statesmen and stateswomen, emergency physicians who I would trust to take care of me in the middle of a burning building in a heartbeat. But, but it's not necessarily the fact just that they're older and have seen more patients. Right. And sometimes to, to make the straw man sort of even more, um, strawful, if that's a word, uh, like, you know, imagine who would you want to take care of you? Would you want an EM intern that had done ACLS training and mega code training and knew how to bag somebody? Or would you want the oldest dermatologist that you could find? Like that person has seen a billion patients and perfected their craft and knows everything there is about dermatology, but it doesn't mean they know how to apply those skills when the patient is screaming and bleeding and dying in front of you. Like you have to develop that skill separately. So, so to put it sort of more bluntly, time on target is necessary, but not sufficient to develop sangfroid. And instead, what you really need is purposeful, focused, conscientious training to develop it. I love it. So now that we've established that um, being cool under pressure um, is a mostly learnable skill um, that we can practice better, and that it's not just the number of patients that you see, but how deliberately you are practicing this to try to get better. Let's kind of get a little bit more tactical about exactly how a, a more junior um, learner in the emergency department could um, start applying some of these skills to steadily get better. So a, a scenario might be uh, Jane is a brand new shiny intern, just showed up in July, and uh, she has a code blue that she's witnessing and she sees a senior resident and that senior resident, she's just crushing it. She's so cool under pressure. All this stuff is happening. And, and Jane is just really mystified. Like, how could I possibly get from this huge gulf of me being just fresh out of med school to, to this smooth operator that's a senior resident that, that she sees doing a flawless resuscitation? Uh, what, what kind of things can Jane focus on to, to, to tiptoe in that direction over time? Yeah. So uh, first off, I love the idea of a shiny intern. I I, I remember <laughs> being a shiny intern. I, I man, that's yeah. Um, yeah. So I actually think the answer starts well before, uh, you know, our, our mythical heroine shows up at that code blue, right? Like the art of getting better under pressure starts way before you actually get under pressure. So I like to conceive of it as sort of two simple machines, the, the wedge and the wheel, right? And you're going to apply those two machines over time and together in order to develop your own skill of being able to perform. So the wedge comes into play uh, when we're talking about um, applying gradual pressure, right? Or applying graduated pressure, excuse me. And the idea is that just like a wedge, you know, you don't try to open something or split something all at once. You introduce a small piece of the wedge and then through pressure over time, you're able to get the entire wedge in there and split whatever it is that you need to split. So when we train to perform under pressure, we want to use that same idea. We want to apply pressure graduated. And what we want to do is be very conscious of the small, low pressure experiments. So, so what does that mean functionally, right? What that means is that if you want to try a skill, 
And whether that skill is intubating or suturing or splinting or any sort of a skill, putting a central line. Actually, that's probably the best example, putting a central line in, right? You don't jump immediately into putting a central line into a crashing patient with an INR of 10 who's flailing around and confused uh, with like altered anatomy from, you know, radiation therapy. Like you don't start there, right? You start on a mannequin on a simulated session where you're able to actually, you start before that, you start by opening the kit and just moving all the pieces around in your hands. You start under extremely low pressure conditions. And then gradually you learn how to do the thing in friendly environments until you're able to perform the skill. Then you turn up the pressure a little more. Then you turn up the pressure a little more. And maybe you assist somebody who's putting a line into a really thrashing sick patient um, before you become the operator who's actually the one they call on and say, hey, you know, let's go get Jane because Jane's the one that can sink this line into this INR of 10 flailing patient. And like, we're all happy with that. Um, but you do that consciously. And it's interesting because it, it's really, this is something I talk about in the book too. Like it's really tempting to chart your way along that graduated pressure by how much you're succeeding right? Because you're able to say, hey, I'm, I'm getting this line in. I'm, now I'm getting this line in. Now I'm getting that line in. But it, the, the, like, the magic of this actually comes when you start tracking your failures, right? You start tracking what breaks down. Because as you build more and more pressure into your system, as Jane practices that central line under worse and worse and more adversarial conditions, she's able to see which parts of her ability to do that break down first. Right? So if you put her all the way at the end, if you're like Jane, sink a line into this INR 10 thrashing patient, like she might fail and you might have no idea why. You might not actually learn anything because, because that dyad of the person and the situation fails at so many different points. But if you apply graduated pressure to it, you're able to sort of let little things fail, fix them, improve your ability to do it, and then ramp that up over time to really apply that wedge to the situation. I love that. And I think the wedge is, is kind of perfect for, for learners like Jane, where they, they see the, the really high-end stuff, you know, that really complex trauma patient that comes in. And whatnot, and and that's just mystifying. It's just way, way too much. In the same way that that you know, I've had a few sessions of jujitsu. If I watch a black belt just rip someone apart, like I, I have no idea what they're doing. It's just so far beyond me that, that I, I can't even understand what's happening because um, I'm just so novice at that. Um, but if you gradually broke it down into simpler and simpler things, you know, a simple jujitsu drill, I can execute. However, if someone is really skilled in trying other stuff for me, there's no way that I could do even a basic technique on them because of my inexperience. And I, I think that it's very, very easy to become um, honestly just almost disempowered. You just feel so beat down that you look at the gulf between you and someone that's really excellent in these complex situations and say, I'll never get there. And yet the vast majority of folks that apply themselves in emergency medicine do get um, pretty comfortable in a lot of those complex situations by gradually increasing the, uh, the stress of the situation or the complexity that they're dealing with or the internal stimuli. I like that you, you mentioned that as well, that, you know, the, the, the struggles that you have as well, you know, can you resuscitate that trauma patient while you're tired and you've been at the, in the department for 11 hours? Maybe you could when you're there for two hours, but maybe not when you're 11. And so gradually getting tougher and tougher at that is, is a, a learnable skill as well. Right. And I mean, the wedge applies just as much internally as it does externally, right? Like as you're testing your, like, cause in order to go from where you start to where you want to be, you have to completely overhaul and sort of upgrade your internal systems. Right. And so I, you know, I, I subtitled this book, like wiring your brain for performance under pressure, because I really think that in order to do that, you, you are really literally changing the way that your brain thinks in certain circumstances. And so to do that, you know, as you're doing these upgrades, you need to do it piece by piece and test it under pressure to see if you're sort of 
of going in the right direction or not. And, and again, that wedge applies just as much internally as it does externally. I love it. So, so the first thing that Jen can do is she can apply this concept to the wedge. She can try out these resuscitation skills in lower stress situations, be they, you know, low fidelity or high fidelity simulations, be they lower acuity patients, be they simpler patients, whatever. And then over time, as she either learns the procedural skills of central lines or how to run a trauma, et cetera, she can push herself gradually more and more with it. Is there anything else that Jane can do um, other than the wedge to, to also improve her resuscitation skills? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so two things. First off, as Jane is doing this, right, as one person is improving their skills, the rest of us can create an environment that makes that more likely to succeed, right? So as we know that people are pressure testing themselves and trying to reach for their next goal, we can help them by asking, where are you? What are you working on? What's your reach goal today? What's your comfort level? How do you feel about this? Um, I, I just recorded a, uh, a really awesome podcast with David uh, Marquet, who was um, wrote the book, Turn the Ship Around, and uh, is a former nuclear submarine captain. And he talks a lot about sort of leadership under significant pressure. And he has a system where he'll ask people not, do you feel comfortable with this? Yes or no, because there's this implied sense that you have to say yes to it, right? We all, we all are in emergency medicine. We all know at the end of the day, if the weight falls on our shoulders, doesn't matter if we're ready or not, we step up and do the best we can, right? And I tell the story um, somewhere in the book about uh, having to put a um, Blakemore tube in my first week of residency, despite not having ever, I mean, like, and that's like the opposite of a well-functioning wedge, but you know, you show up for emergency medicine, you realize some days the wedge isn't there. Some days it's like you in the fire and you just do the best you can. Um, but instead of saying, are you ready or not? Because we're all going to basically say yes to that. Um, uh, David talks about asking people to, to give a number of fingers about how ready they are. So are they one ready or are they five ready? And then being honest about, well, sometimes you're a four, sometimes you're a three ready, right? And asking our teammates where they are before they do a skill helps us understand where they are on that wedge. Are they in a place where they're really ready to go and feel completely comfortable? Phenomenal. We can give them lots of, lots of leeway and rope and support them however they need. Are they maybe feeling a three? So they're really, really right shifted on the Yerkes-Dodson curve. They're feeling super overwhelmed and frazzled and they're not really sure how to do it phenomenal. We can support them better and help them take that next step forward. So I think that's I a really it. important thing that like the wedge exists in context and we are that context. And some days you're the cutting edge of the wedge and some days you're pushing it from behind and you know, you're all in it together. Um, the second simple machine, I think that's critically, critically important as we think about performing under pressure and learning is the idea of the wheel. And um, where the wedge is about taking one thing and driving it forward, the wheel is about iterating and experimenting, right? So when I think about it, I think about the steps of sort of uh, have an idea, try an idea, measure it to see if it worked and learn something, right? So alternately called build, measure, learn, right? If you, if you go back and read um, like the lean startup with Eric Ray's talks a lot about this in, in the business world. Uh, but this idea of you're going to try something, you're going to see if it works, and then you're going to... Uh, upgrade your model and your approach after seeing what happens to it. And you're just going to spin that wheel as much as you possibly can. So implicit in that is the idea that you're going to run a particular experiment as you're doing something. Now that could be, okay, going back to our central line idea, like, okay, in this time, I'm going to experiment by using a different breathing pattern when I'm actually putting the needle in at the beginning because I know that my hands shake sometimes when I'm nervous and I need to control my emotional state in that first part of accessing the internal jugular vein under ultrasound guidance. 
okay, I'm going to experiment by taking a different set of breaths. My metric, my output of the experiment will be how internally I feel and how externally it appears my hands are shaking. And then I'll upgrade my model at the end of that by saying, okay, did that work or not? What am I going to do next time? And so running that wheel over and over again helps us go from this is an uncrossable gap to this is what I'm going to try to do today to step forward and try to cross that gap. So you did a couple of things there that I absolutely love. One is that your metric of success was not just, did I put a central line into the patient, which I, I see a lot of junior learners, they, you know, they, they think that a code goes smoothly if you get return of circulation or that a central line was placed well, if you actually get central line in blood vessel as intended. Uh, when in reality, um, there are loads of codes that are run really, really well, and you just don't get um, ROSC. You just don't um, get a return of circulation at all. And there are some central lines that I've witnessed where there were some, you know, errors made that there were some significant issues with visualizing the needle with ultrasound, with the way the wire was threaded and whatnot. And in the end, you, you might've actually, you know, lucked out um, that, that the central line was placed safely. There were no complication, um, but we're really susceptible to resulting fallacies. I know that this is one of the things that I fall into a trap of a lot of, of thinking that because nothing terrible happened, um, then, I did something well. And if, if something good happens, then I must've done it properly. But if we kind of break it down into those small, smaller granular steps, you can actually say, Hey, I just want to see how my hand is shaking when I'm threading this wire because of my breathing um, change, not whether I put the, the, the line actually in the internal jugular as I intended. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and I think that like a really good, super concrete example of that one of the most underrated and critically important skills among that, that I value in myself, but also that I look for in my residents when I'm watching them go through things is in the middle of an intubation, when the first pass misses, how do you change and succeed at the second pass? Like that is the crux of so much of what we're talking about, right? You find yourself in a situation where the person's not breathing. You have to get this tube to save their life. You missed on the first attempt it's super easy to declare yourself a failure in that moment and sort of like combust, right? Lots of people just catch on fire in that moment and like game over, but you can't do that. How do you do that? How do you recognize what you learned, decide what you're gonna do differently next time and then succeed at that second pass? And there's there's so much of the book is about essentially that question, right? The section on making plan B part of the plan and being comfortable with uncertainty, training that through applying graduated pressure. So so much of the book goes into that idea. But what you're saying about the differences, you know, between performance and outcome and the resulting fallacy and and really getting into this crux of like, how do you regroup and keep going? I, I love it. Um, I, ironically, uh, I have some really amazing residents in my program. And some of them will actually go months without failing to have a first pass success while intubating, you know, and, and, and somewhat cruelly, they're some of the best airway operators that, that they so rarely have to go to the second line that they get fewer reps at that and actually struggle a little bit more than some folks that, that paradoxically often have to go to the, the second line. And, and that's where that mental preparation of being ready for plan B is being part of the plan. You know, that, that's actually a really, really important aspect of what we do. Yeah. So it Sometimes when we do visualizations training about intubation in particular, we'll run something I really love called a stumble and recovery drill, where essentially you start the visualization imagining that your first pass has failed. And then how do you succeed at the second pass? Um, and that's so much about being able to talk through, okay, well, 
I recognize this piece of data from the patient's airway. Here's what I need to do to adjust it. And something I would love that I, that I have not seen before that I'd love to build or learn if it exists, right? I'd love to see a series of pictures of airways that were difficult to get to that require you to look at that, process what happened, and then explain what you would do differently on the second pass. I think that would be a really valuable teaching tool. Um, you know, and it, you can say, hey, here's your airway. You try to Mac 3. Uh, it didn't work. What are you going to do? Okay. Like, now, now you just got the wheels turning now. Like we, we, we got to make this a, a series of videos with a, a, a option of, oh, you're going to, you're going to do external laryngeal manipulation. You got to reposition the head. You need a shoulder roll. Like I, yeah. I, I actually love that. I think that would be great. And, and that's such a fertile ground for improving, right? And again, you think about the, the, the wedge, right? You can get the first part of the wedge in there, but how, but in order to really get better, you have to keep pushing it forward. And that involves being uncomfortable. That involves putting yourself in situations where you don't have perfect success and where you are uncomfortable. Um, Dave Alred is a, a, a rugby coach and wrote the book, The Pressure Principle. Um, and he talks about this idea as, as what he calls the ugly zone, which is that you're, you're in so much uh, friction and pressure that your technique is no longer beautiful, that things are starting to get a little ugly and that that's where a lot of the learning sort of comes in. Um, and I think that's true. And, and it, you know, all learning comes with a price, right? Ideally, we learn very cheaply, which is that we learn in simulation or we learn on uh, theoretical constructs and not on patients. Sometimes though, you know, when suffering does happen like that, when we do miss an airway, like we also have to learn from that. We've already paid the price in terms of that, that initial failure. And so the question is, how do we not waste that suffering? How do we leverage what we've learned in order to keep getting better? I love it. So, so Jane has watched this masterful resuscitationist um, go. She's applying these wedge principles to her life by, by gradually increasing the complexity of what she does with both simulations as well as real patients, et cetera. Um, she's also trying different things, you know, uh, very small granular things, everything from little procedural skills about how she breathes while threading a wire to exactly how she introduces herself to patients, all these different things she's iterating by using the wheel. Um, let's talk a little bit more about never wasting that suffering because Jane is inevitably going to have things that, that don't go well, that, that are going to have patients where bad things happen. And truthfully, the, as, as part of training uh, medical professionals, um, that there will be mistakes that, that are made. Like none of us are perfect. We've all made medical errors. How is it that Jane can kind of recover uh, from that? Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm the first to admit that I, you know, I'm an imperfect human and I practice an imperfect science and I practice it imperfectly. And I keep saying that because I think that's so important to say and to, to acknowledge and to be true to yourself about that, that, that you can be the best ER doctor in the universe and you're not going to get everything right. Um, and that's, that's okay. Right. So, um, I often think about this concept of uh, wabi-sabi, which is sort of this overarching philosophical idea that that loosely translates as like, nothing is perfect, nothing is permanent, and nothing is complete. And that if I hold that as my center point, not ultimate perfection, then I'm able to understand more that my job is to do the best I can today and to set myself up to be able to do better tomorrow for the patient that comes in. And that that's my metric of, of moving forward. Um, and it's hard because, you know, so none of us want to see anybody suffer. 
none of us want to see people have pain or none of us want to see bad things happen to, to humans. But they do. And, and I think that you're sort of left with a choice, which is that either you let that um, crush you in one sense or another, or you say, okay, I'm not going to waste that. I'm going to try to do whatever I can to get better for the next patient that comes in. Um, when I was a resident, one of the senior residents would end a code where, um, where we were unable to get ROSC, where the patient, the patient died. She would end the code by holding a moment of silence, putting her hand on the patient's foot and saying, I'm, you know, ma'am or sir, thank you for teaching me. I'm sorry. All I could do today was learn. Huh. And I mean, that I, I've never forgotten that. And I have for sure adopted that as this idea that like, you know, you are, you have to learn, you have to learn. Otherwise you waste that suffering and it dissipates into the universe. And, and that's not something I'm personally okay with. And I absolutely love that. I, I've always thought of this as being two kind of sides of the same coin is one having that self-compassion to realize that, yes, we're deeply flawed people practicing an imperfect science that really stretches the definition of science, if we're being honest, For you sure. know, that we're trying our best in this impossible situation of taking care of whatever comes to the door. Uh, but being able to dust yourself off and forgive yourself that, yes, you too are a flawed person, and so is everyone else in the building, and you, you have to, to be able to forgive yourself. And then additionally, um, that, that avoiding of the wasting of that suffering, that knowing that, you know, the airways that I've learned the most from were not the ones that went well. Um, because honestly, I, I learned very little um, in, you know, the vast majority of the airways where, yeah, I got first pass success, it wasn't that bad. But the few um, airways that I've had that really went off the rails, those are the backbone of how I approached airways, because uh, things didn't go right, because I struggled and, and did not have immediate success. Those are, are what made me the airway operator that I am today. Right. And part of, part of recognizing the desire to not waste suffering is that I'm going to guess here, I'm going to guess you talk to your residents about those airways. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. That's, that's part of it. That's part of it about learning how to leverage what happened by telling these stories to each other about what happened. Right. So Gary Klein in his book, Sources of Power talks about the, the power to tell stories to each other as an expert and about to convey certain like pieces of what we're doing in a way that teaches and informs and sets the other person better up for success. Um, Ryan Anderson, who was on the podcast uh, early on, he's a um, retired uh, Navy, Navy bomb squad expert to put it that way. He talks a lot about the idea of when folks come back, one of the first things they do is they develop SIM cases based on the devices they just disarmed because that's fresh knowledge and the equivalent of telling a story about a tough airway. And it's the ability to recognize that like whatever happened in that moment, you're going to show back up to work tomorrow and you're going to try to leverage that moment in order to improve yourself and the team around you. Um, and like to get to the nuts and bolts of that, like, how do you do that? Well, use the wedge and use the wheel right? Like if you're thinking about not wasting suffering and it's too big a concept, it feels too painful and too scary to approach with the death of a patient. Like that's okay. Start with the cutting edge of the wedge, right? Don't waste suffering for a small thing that happens wrong. And then like experiment about what it's like to come back the next day and try to learn from it, how to teach yourself how to be better from it. And then over time, ramp that up until you're able to really use that. 
you know, get to where you want to be going. Like you don't have to get there all at once. You just have to keep going and you have to keep doing it piece after piece after piece with the idea that through time practice and through conscious thought, you can get yourself better at applying knowledge under pressure. You can get yourself better at not wasting suffering. You can be better tomorrow for your patients than you are today. I love it. So Jane is gradually transforming herself by increasing the complexities of her cases, as well as, as the, the situations that she's putting herself in. Uh, she is using the wheel to try different things and see how it works. And then she's avoiding the wasting of suffering because um, almost all the learning that we do uh, in emergency medicine and beyond is really through that personal encounter, through those individual cases that we had where, you know, we, we learned something from that, which unfortunately had some suffering. Is there any other parting words that you have for Jane as she continues her process? I think it's worth saying again out loud that we are all in this together and we're stronger when we do it together. The more explicit and uh, out loud Jane can be about her thought process before, during, and after a case, the easier it is for all of the rest of us to support her in her growth. Conversely, those of us that are at a different point in our wedge or running different sets of experiments, the more explicit we are that we too are works under progress, right? That we too are developing ourselves as humans and that we're not cooked and finalized. We're also applying wedges and wheels and, and experimenting. And the more we make our culture one of experimentation and growth, I think the stronger and better we will all be. Um, you know, when I first started medical school, that's not the way that it was taught to me. <laughs> right. I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, got screamed at in operating rooms <laughs> because I didn't cut, I didn't hold the scissor the right way. And there's some truth in that I was holding the scissor wrong, but it wasn't, you know, like there's a difference between like the old way we did medicine and this way that I'm talking about, which is a culture that embraces experimentation, growth, and progress, which again gets back to that wabi-sabi idea of like nothing's complete, nothing's permanent, and nothing's perfect. If we really hold that idea, if we really believe that medicine is not finalized, that we are not final products as attendings, that instead we are all in this together as students of performance under pressure, you know, that's, uh, that's an enormous amount of energy that we can harness to, to get better as individuals, teams, and as a community. That, that, that has been a, a, a huge personal path for me as well. Uh, I was recently working with an intern and the intern was asking me a question about the application of the Ottawa ankle rule to pediatric patients. And I said, like, I, I'm really not sure, but last I, I heard, uh, I, it had not been validated in kids, which is fundamentally wrong. That is actually incorrect. And, and she showed it to me later and said, oh, look, I, I found this thing. And I was like, that's awesome. Yeah, I was really wrong about that. And she, she was really surprised because I am known locally uh, as a super big nerd that just reads a lot. I was like, no, like, why are you surprised? Like, this is fundamental to like what we do. I'm wrong all the time. You just have no idea. Like, don't think of me as this nerdy guy that reads a lot. And I'm never going to make mistakes. Like I learned something today and that's rad. Like that is like such a, a important message, you know, as I tell thousands of people how badly I screwed up on shift, like that, that it's an important part of the narrative of, of, of what it means for us to get better at the practice of medicine, to learn uh, how to be wrong and how to iterate and then improve. Dude, evolve or die, right? Yeah. All right. So I love it. Uh, I, I love all these concepts. Let's say that, that Jane is wanting to expand further because, you know, we're, we're just given like a little taste, right? We're, we're given a small mm -hmm. sample 
Uh, oh, yeah. Talk about mistakes. We're giving a small <laughs> sample platter of, of the different ways that Jane could um, approach these, these issues. Where could Jane turn if she wants to dive a little bit more uh, into some of this emergency mind thinking? Yeah. Uh, I mean, okay, well, so obviously I wrote a book about this, right? Which is like, I'm not sure if that's what you're getting at or not, but I'll go ahead and take this opportunity to plug the book again. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. Um, you can find it at emergencymind.com slash book. Uh, and it gives you um, a series of 25 sort of core mental models that I use, that other ER doctors use, and that other people performing under pressure use to build out the um, the structure and the vocabulary about how one performs under pressure. And you can think about that as like 25 vocabulary words that you can now go and use to build sentences and, and you know, write stories and eventually become Shakespeare out of. Um, and I, I think though that when I, when I sort of view a future that I want for this, it's my hope that this will start people talking about it in their local shops and they'll start being able to drill and expand and sort of have this local responsive community where you're all experimenting together about it. So, you know, I, I think, you know, Jane should, should read the book. I think it's pretty good, but even separate from that, like I think Jane should also be part of a team that is all experimenting and, and working together to sort of move forward about that. Um, and that requires, of course, not just Jane, that requires all of us to like get our acts together and, and start working on it. So, uh, you know, with, with no, uh, you know, financial interest whatsoever in, in the book, because I'm pretty sure your master plan is not to retire on an island based on a, a book about <laughs> uh, emergency uh, uh, mind thinking. But, uh, you know, with, uh, I, I finished the book today, actually, and uh, I, I'm immediately going to be getting copies for all of my residents, because it is honestly the thing that I wish that I'd had a decade ago. Uh, when I was a junior learner, because there was a lot of stuff that I got much more painfully. You know, I was honestly wasting some <laughs> suffering by yeah. by not fully applying this and not getting better. And and I read dozens of books on performance and whatnot. And this is a really good short book to kind of get a, a jumping off to all these other things. If you want to get into deeper topics, yeah, absolutely, like go for it. But but this really kind of summarizes it very nicely, um, and it's something you could read in an afternoon if you wanted to sort of understand, like, hey. I, let me let me learn a little bit about this skill and jump off into something deeper. Um, so I, I, I really highly recommend it. Thank you. That that means a lot. I really appreciate that. And 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 I hope that folks listening find it useful. And and, and I hope that it that it creates cheaper learning than would have happened otherwise. To put it the way that you described it there. Awesome. So to to summarize, we're going to be uh, looking at at ways that we can um, constantly improve with the wheel by by trying different things, experimenting with it. We're going to apply wedge situations to, to our approach to learning, uh, sort of gradually increasing the difficulty, um, either internally or externally with the stuff that we do. Uh, we are also going to never waste suffering. And, and remember that we need to be part of a community, that we're open about our mistakes, um, that we are imperfect people doing a very challenging task, and that we can share those narratives with, with each other and not feel so lonely because we're all in this together and we're all continuing to try to improve together to do the best we can for our patients. And to, to, to sort of bend that slightly at the end, like, like we're all going to be part of a community, yes, that recognizes imperfection and talks about our errors. But to me that like, it's also so exciting and so positive, right. To be part of a team that's learning and growing together. Like when I, when I show up to the jujitsu gym, I am part of a group of people that is working to better themselves at this art and better themselves in the process. And there's, there's joy in that, even as you're getting, you know, strangled and beaten up, like there's, there's joy in that. And that's what I want 
the ER to look like when you're performing under pressure, right? Like it is hard, hard work and you are dropped into the middle of life and death situations in the, in the middle of raw humanity. And there should be a very fierce joy in being part of that team. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so here's to uh, my fierce joy for this topic. And uh, uh, hopefully the first of many conversations we have together about some uh, granular ways for us to develop better emergency minds. Absolutely. Sounds great. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dan. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. Again, you can find out more about both the Emergency Mind and the EM Basic podcasts, uh, either through Apple Podcasts or anything else, or by going to embasic.org or emergencymind.com. As one final reminder, our goal here is to provide education, and what we talk about should not be construed as medical advice. Additionally, it represents our own opinions and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals with which we work. Okay, good luck out there. Keep training.